and welcome to the relaunch of International Airports Reviews podcast series. My name is Holly Miles and I'm the editor of International Airports Review. We pick up this podcast series during what has been the most devastating time for aviation with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has seen flights grounded around the world airports closed and international travel grind to a halt. Global passenger traffic in 2020 declined by 64.2%, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel with rapid testing available and a number of coronavirus vaccinations being rolled out around the world. And it is against this backdrop that I interview David Wilson, Chief Operations Officer of Oman Airports. David has spent over 28 years in the aviation industry, following several years serving in the British Army. David has been in the role of Chief Operations Officer at Oman Airport since June 2017 and was accountable for the Operational Readiness Activation and Transition Programme and Preparedness for the future operation of the new Muscat International Airport. Together we discuss the impact the pandemic has had on Oman's passenger numbers and how they set about rearranging their operations to reduce costs. We also delve into how David sees the future of demand for travel in the region and for their own airport passenger traffic. We also discuss the ORAT programme and the role that he played in this. And it is an absolute pleasure to have David as a guest on this podcast. So, David, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you, Holly. If you could start off by just giving us a background on Oman airports and the markets that you are operating in. Okay, so Oman Airports is a government-owned organisation responsible for the operations and maintenance of the civil airports and a few of the oilfield airports in the Sultanate of Oman. We have four civil airports, which is Muscat in the capital city, Salala in the southwest of the country, and two small regional airports called Sohar and Dukum. We also operate on behalf of Petroleum Development Oman, three of the oilfield airfields in the interior where we operate and manage the, the airports. We're also responsible for all the commercial operations, capital investment and projects, and we have finance IT departments as well who offer services to airlines, uh, other uh, stakeholders such as ground handlers, control authorities, and we're responsible for the regulated business that is the aerodrome operations and security operations. Yeah, so the market we operate in is very much a difficult one at the, at the present moment in time. You know, um, you know, w- within the GCC, there's obviously some big, big players in terms of airlines and airports, such as Qatar Airways uh, and, and Hamad International Airport. DXB, obviously, is one of the world's busiest airports with Emirates. And obviously the new midfield terminal at Abu Dhabi with Etihad. So it's a, it's a quite a, a difficult market and uh, we'll come on to COVID-19 impacts uh, soon. But Oman's a very uh, small uh, country of five and a half million people. It's a beautiful country. Uh, the whole purpose of the airports is to be the gateway to beauty and opportunity within the Sultanate of Oman. We're not trying to be Dubai. We're not trying to be Ahmed International. Um, very traditional um country with wonderful hospitality, beautiful scenery, and is a fantastic uh, tourism destination. And hopefully when the world becomes a slightly better place than it is at the moment, uh, many people on the call and yourself, Holly, would be very welcome to come and visit the beautiful country that is Oman. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to hold you to that. Um, So you are Chief Operating Officer. Um, Could you give us an overview of your role and what that entails exactly? Yeah, certainly. Um, so, like most chief operating officers, uh, our 
I, I feel anyway through network that I've got of COOs. My job is primarily to translate the strategic objectives of the organisation into operational and tactical projects um, to ensure safe, efficient flow of passengers through our airports. Um, I always say, if you've seen one airport, you've seen one airport. But I try to make the operation of an airport very simple by saying it's about people, bags and planes. So as Chief Operating Officer, I have a, a team of people operating the airports that I just mentioned. I've got a Vice President in charge of Muscat, a Vice President in charge of Salala, a Vice President in charge of the regional airports. And I set the strategic direction to them. We work together in delivering tactical and operational success, ensuring regulated compliance, whether that's aerodrome operations, airfield operations, aerodrome security. I also have the relationship with the regulator and with the Royal Oman Police, who are responsible for airport security and immigration. I've got a team of about nine vice presidents and senior directors who are responsible for delivering the day-to-day -day operational parts of the business. I suppose you could say I do the majority of things in the airports, with the exception of commercial and IT operations. There's a chief commercial officer and a chief information officer that's responsible for that. But I work very, very closely with uh, many, many stakeholders, airlines, ground handlers, etc., etc., just to ensure the safe, efficient, secure flow, as I said earlier, of passengers, bags and aircraft through our airports. And you were accountable for the ORAT programme for the preparedness of the future operation of the new Muscat Airport, which opened in 2018. Could you give us an overview of the ORAT programme and what it actually entails? A hell of a lot of hard work. <laughs> a hell of a lot of hard work, huge amount of uh, stakeholder engagement, lots of late nights, early mornings and weekend working. But in general speaking, the ORAP programme, Operational Readiness and Airport Transfer, was ensuring that we had the infrastructure ready, we had the equipment ready and operational fit for use. Our staff were trained, they were competent, they had standard operating procedures that were clear, concise and had been well practised. And the way we ensured we were ready was carrying out hundreds of trials, either basic trials for individual component parts, for example, the check-in product, maybe just do a small trial of 10 check-in desks with the ground handling company, with the IT service provider, to ensure that the process was, was understood and was sharp in terms of the delivery of service that we expect to deliver to our passengers. We'd also split things up, for example, airfield, so runways, taxiways, parking stands, a visual docking guidance system, the operation of the loading bridges. So from an airfield perspective, there was a huge number of basic trials that were carried out, baggage handling systems. Again, a fairly simple process, you would imagine, but with all the high-level control and low-level control systems required to maintain your right bags to the right chute for an outbound aircraft or the right bag at the breakup area to the right carousel for the arrival passenger, there's a huge amount of complexity and a huge amount of detailed planning that needed to be done. So like I say, lots and lots of basic trials, lots and uh, even before that, tabletop exercises, making sure the standard operating procedures were understood, shared with everybody, feedback received after every single trial. And, and sometimes the trials would go terribly wrong and people would start to get a little bit of a panic, you know. And I say, don't, don't panic, guys. What we want is that I want things to go wrong now while we're doing the trials. And then we understand what went wrong, why it went wrong, how it went wrong and who was perhaps responsible. No blame was applied, but what we do is we take on board all the feedback, we analyse the data, we measure the performance, we implement new procedures or we change the procedure that's already there 
Well, they control the way we actually deliver the individual elements of the basic trials. Once we had a level of confidence that the basic trials were successful, then we make them more complex and bringing in more elements. So much so that we get to a position where we had several thousand passengers, well, simulated passengers, with lots of volunteers from the local population around about Muscat coming to participate as a passenger. So we would give them a fake boarding pass, they would go to a check-in desk, they would check in, they would be given a piece of luggage, they would then go to PBS, emigration, security, go to the gate, and at the end of it all, before the aircraft, simulated aircraft, was going to uh, depart, the exercise would be cancelled. We'd take the passengers, or the simulated passengers, back to the arrivals hall where we had iPads set up so they could give us feedback what worked well, what didn't go so well. And we go back through that iteration time after time after time after time until we get a level of confidence that the, the flow is uh, the flow and the processes are right. Everybody knows what they're doing and we move forwards into a go live date which we which we did on the twentieth of March, twenty eighteen. And it was a, a great success, I'm pleased to say. There's always challenges, there's always problems, but there was nothing significant over the first few days. And uh, it, it worked very, very well. All that's an incredibly complex field, shall we say. That, that's me just giving you a quick overview of how, how we applied it. And we had a number of partners and we had Munich Airport International as our ORAC consultant. Uh, we had many airlines involved, the contractors uh, who were doing the construction works and the delivery of the baggage handling systems, the IT systems uh, providers, et cetera, et cetera. They're all heavily involved. It's not just down to the airport. And I think ORAC is, is, is primarily something that I would say is, it's like you don't have a foot in the one it has many people's feet in that camp. Imagine Aura being a circle. All the stakeholders have to have a foot in that camp, in that circle, because you've got oh, you've all got a part to play. It's not down to one individual. So, oops, yeah, I was accountable to the CEO. There were hundreds, thousands of people who were doing a hell of a lot of hugely important work to ensure that the, the, the final go live was successful. Fantastic. You actually put it very simply, so thank you very much for that. It sounds like a full-scale dress rehearsal that goes on before the doors open on that first day. Absolutely, that's a great example. That's a great description, Holly. <laughs> How long does this this full programme take? Is it years or months? Yes, well, it, it, depending on the complexity and the size of the project. So uh, New Muscat International Airport is 540,000 square metres, 96 check-in desks, 10 uh, baggage carousels, 64 passenger boarding gates. It's a big asset. Uh, I arrived in Oman in uh, May of 2017, uh, about 10 months before the airport went live. Basic trials had already started by the time I got there, but it was still a construction site as well. So we were actually, when I got there, uh, my responsibility and accountability was to just analyse and assess the, the status of the ORAP programme and the ability to go live in the early part of 2018. So uh, again, I mentioned earlier how we had to engage a lot with the construction companies and the IT companies because there was various different phases of handover as well. And there was also things like the fitting out of the commercial facilities for duty-free, the food and beverage areas, etc., etc., uh, and, and the retail outlets. So there was construction going on simultaneously. Uh, and I think what you've got to do is pragmatically look at how you get benefits uh, uh, from your team and from the stake for the stakeholders perspective, plus at the same time, not limiting the ability for the construction companies to continue with their works. And we would all have like full PPE or when we're doing our, our basic trials. So, you know, the short answer to your question is it was about an 18 month to 24 month program in advance of Go Live, but with many, many, uh, trials taking place as well throughout the duration. Great. And I know the ORAT program is used, 
you know, essentially for new airports when they are opening their terminals. But can the ORAT programme be applied to airports that have maybe scaled down their operations during the pandemic and are ready to to start scaling back up to accommodate um, rising passenger numbers again? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good question, and and it's it's very relevant because we applied the same principles when we reopened the airports on the first of October, twenty twenty. Uh, we had to close the airports at the government's request because of the the, the impact of the pandemic on on the country. Uh, we we closed on the twenty ninth of March, twenty twenty, uh, and all we did was we slowly reduced over the course of March because in passenger numbers, the air traffic movements were beginning to drop naturally anyway. In terms of people not wanting to fly and airlines reducing the schedule. So we basically started to shut down our peers accordingly. So we, we shut down the peers incrementally from, we've got three major peers, north, south and west. We eventually reduced down to one peer operating only, shut down our lifts, escalators, travelators, etc. Switched off the power, switched off all non-essential assets and maintained life safety systems, obviously like fire alarm systems and so on. Uh, but we shut shut the airport down basically in an incremental way until we got to a position where there was no more business in terms of scheduled flights. We operated throughout the, the closure period with repatriation flights and cargo operations were still in place. So from an airfield perspective, fire and rescue service airfield operations, then the manpower remained in place because we still had air traffic movements every day, as I say, for cargo or repatriation. But when we were notified by the government that they wanted us to reopen the airports on the 1st of October, we applied the exact same principles uh, of ORAT in terms of stakeholder engagement, trials, testing. It was obviously on a lot lower scale because the airport was a live and operational airfield and airport. But to be honest with you, we when we closed at the end of March, we had anticipated and hoped it would only be for a matter of six to eight weeks. So as soon as the airport closed, within a fortnight, by the middle of April, my team and I, as well as our stakeholders, had the startup plan already already developed. You know, we knew what peer, we had five or six different scenarios in terms of all the flights come back, or it's GCC only, or it's domestic only, or it's international uh, Europe, or it's Southeast Asia, China market coming back. So we had a number of different scenarios um, and, and the plan was ready and tested by the middle to latter part of April. And then it was really just a case of wait until the appropriate time and the, uh, the instruction came to open. But the principles were still the same. Stakeholder engagement, reviewing of SOPs, because a lot more, a lot had changed, obviously, with social distancing stickers, temperature checks, you know, signage in place. We also had, obviously, hand sanitizers everywhere, you know, screens in place, PPE in place. The ability to engage a passenger when you're wearing a mask. We all like to be greeted with a smile, for example. Very difficult when you're wearing a mask. All that was had to be tested and trialled. And what we also did is we, we uh, provided PCR tests on arrival for all international arriving passengers. So that was a, a process that had to be uh, trialled and tested in advance of us opening up. And we also had laboratories on the, uh, on the airport as well so we could do a speedy PCR test results service as well people arriving into the Sultanate from an international origin. So yeah, we did use a lot of the principles. That's good that it can be sort of repurposed and reapplied uh, to this situation. But you touched upon your passenger numbers. So could you, you know, tell us about the impact that the pandemic has had on your passenger numbers and the measures that, you know, you have taken as an airport to protect your revenues and business operations? It's it won't be a surprise to you or to everybody on the uh, on the, the call to know that it's had a, a, a 
devastating impact on our revenue and our passenger numbers. Muscat International Airport would see 75 to 80,000 passengers a day, 450 to 500 air traffic movements per day. As we sit here today, we've got an average of maybe 7,000 passengers per day. So that's only 10% of normal with only 40 to 50 air traffic movements per day. So uh, the impact on our, organ on our business in terms of financial performance and our revenue has been devastating, absolutely devastating. And it fell off a cliff like that. I suppose we were lucky in 2020 that we had two really strong months in January and February, and March was only about seven, sorry, 30% down on 2019 numbers. So with a decent start to the year, in terms of the first couple of months. So uh, financially, we, we're, still, we're still okay as an organisation. Uh, I've obviously got many friends in the industry. and You look at what's been going on and some of the announcements about people losing their jobs and the losses at some of the big European airports. It's devastating for the industry. What have we done to try and uh, reduce our operating costs and uh, protect some of our revenue? We've sat the chief commercial officer with our CEO has sat with the airline community, try to give them a, a little bit of support in terms of their operating costs into the airports, in terms of airport charges, landing charges, baggage and passenger fees, etc. So try to give a little bit of a respite in that area. That in itself has not necessarily protected or even saved any of our revenue, but it's a, it's a decision taken for the medium to long term viability of the business to attract the airlines and keep the airlines operating into our airports. Uh, that's that's important. But, you know, as the COO, in my divisions are primarily cost centres. So we looked at every single contract that we had, from small contracts of maybe $20,000 a month to multi-million dollar per month contracts that we have in place. Uh, we talked to all those suppliers, we asked for reductions, we said the KPIs we will drop in terms of uh, the, the target KPI and the service level agreements to a standard that was satisfactory to us in terms of maintaining the level of standard and service that we still expect. We looked at how we could reduce our, our utilities bills as well in terms of electricity, water, sewage. Uh, there's no much need for heating in the Middle East, as you know. So we looked at how we could really do, you know, make make efficiencies with our utilities. The manpower side of things is something that in the Omani labour law, the Omani employees are, are protected. We did lose a number of our expatriate colleagues, sadly, due to the drop in business and the need for reduction in our staff costs. So in, in summary, we, you know, from a revenue perspective, it's been devastating. We're doing as much as we possibly can to try and support our airlines, who are our key customers, working with our concessionaires to ensure that our level of service with retail, food and beverage, duty-free, etc., is, is still maintained, but we can still offer a service to the passengers who are travelling through the airports from a cost perspective, managing every single one of our contracts, reviewing the costs, reviewing the SLAs and KPIs, as well at the same time looking at our utilities, bills and costs. And as I say, manpower-wise, just try and, well, complete manpower freeze and try to reduce where possible and restructure our organisational departments, certainly operational, to try and reduce the number of people on shift, whilst at the same time improving the efficiencies and doing some continuous improvement activities to, to ensure our people are, one, safe and healthy, and secondly, can still deliver a level of service that our passengers expect. And Oman Airports is state-owned um, owned by the Omani government. 
have you had yeah. much help from them in terms of aid? There's been there's been no state aid given to Oman airports or Oman Air so far. Um, there has been support in other ways in terms of helping to facilitate discussions with the regulator that provides electricity to try and reduce costs. Also with the energy sector as well, oil to look at the, the, the price of Jetty One fuel so we can try and reduce the cost to the airlines. There's been a restructure put in place whereby the cargo and ground handling company that was separate has now come into Oman Airport's uh, responsibility, albeit they are individual uh, autonomous companies. But under the auspices of Oman Airport's catering as well as hospitality has now fallen under Oman Air. So there's been a, a de-layering and a more, a more structured position put in place in terms of the sector, which is, which is I think, is going to see good opportunities for cost savings and reductions in uh, manpower in certain areas, but also an opportunity to be more efficient and slick when making commercial decisions. So that's the level of support we've been getting through the, the government ministries, whether that's Ministry of Transport, Ministry of Tourism, Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and of course, the Civil Aviation Authority. Great. And in terms of implementing contactless and biometrics technologies. Have you managed to do that in the airport or if not, do you have plans to? Yeah, we were actually on that journey through 2019. I mentioned how we opened the airport in the March of 2018. Uh, beautiful airport, fantastic uh, asset and uh, of national pride to Oman. But the technology in there was, 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 was far, far better than the old airport but not quite leading edge. So we had a desire to bring in the touchless, you know, self-service kiosk, self-service bag drop, blah, blah, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The project was due to kick in in the uh, Q2 of 2020. So uh, surprise, surprise, it was postponed. The budget has been reduced significantly, but we are we are still looking through 2021 to go down the route of biometric, touchless and seamless technology, uh, whether that's uh, immigration in terms of touchless and seamless access into the country through either kiosks where you carry out your transactional stuff away from the border and then just go through a facial biometric e-gate and enter. And that's one option we're looking at. We're also looking at whereby if you if you know the airports like the, the Chang airports of the world, uh, Munich airport, etc., they're using a lot of touchless biometric, whether that's facial, iris or fingerprint. Some up to the individual state, obviously, who uh, who put the uh, regulations in place. But we are we are we have had a number of calls this year already with some of the big uh, companies uh, in terms of technology suppliers. We've also spoken to a number of airports on things like the single token journey, which you'll be familiar with, or single token identity, which is using your face as your boarding pass, so to speak. It's a, a vision box terminology that. Friends of mine in India, uh, certainly at Bangalore Airport, they, they've been down that digital transformational route. I think it's fair to say, though, uh, um, no airport's done it totally at the present moment in time. You know, Beijing uh, have done some fantastic stuff with the CETA Smart Path. I think that's probably one of the one of the best in the world in terms of what I've read about and seen and spoken to colleagues about. But realistically speaking, I don't think there is the total single token journey successfully implemented anywhere. And the closest, I think, you would suggest, I would suggest, would be Beijing and, and maybe Changi to some extent. I think with the COVID-19 pandemic, I think the touchless element is going to be really, really important. Um, I think, you know, we may come on to it, but, you know, the, the passenger expectation has changed massively now. Um, where previously it was, get me through quickly, get me a good, uh, I want good deals in the departure lounge for food and beverage. 
cosmetics, liquor, fragrances, etc. I want an excellent customer experience. There is still a necessary, uh, 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 an expectation on good customer experience. But number one priority is health and welfare. Passengers travelling through our airports that we've seen since we reopened on the 1st of October, their priorities have changed. They want to make sure that they're safe, they're secure, there's healthy uh, procedures in place, their welfare is being looked after, cleanliness is of the highest standards. They don't mind queuing slightly longer in check-in. They don't mind queuing slightly longer in immigration. They don't mind queuing slightly longer in outbound security if they feel that their welfare is being looked after. So hence why I think the biometric digital transformational stuff is going to be more and more important over the uh, over the next few months and years to come. Big challenge is how it's paid for and funded because these this equipment, this infrastructure is expensive. And as a regulated airport, we need to recover our capital investment. And uh, if the airlines are still hemorrhaging money as they are, and you know, putting in a few million dollars worth of new technology is is the right thing to do. But what's also, as a commercial business, the right thing to do is generate a return on that investment. And if we can only generate a return on investment by increasing, for example, passenger charges or other airport charges, then that increases the cost of the airline operating into our airports. Subsequently, that increase in cost will be transferred onto the passenger. So it's a bit of a never decreasing circle. You know, it's important to put this new technology in. However, the better the, the cost is, is significant. So who pays ultimately? You know, we can take our part, airlines will take their part, passengers will take their part, ground handling companies will take their part, etc. etc. So the business case and the and the purpose of why you do this type of technology and uh, implement this biometric journey through the airports it has to be clearly understood by everybody. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think the pandemic is going to have a lasting impact on the consciousness of the, the passenger for, for many years to come. And therefore, you know, airports are going to have to really change and adapt to this. But um, your, your sort of line of responsibility, obviously, is operations. Have you been able to promote operational excellence at all during the pandemic? Has it, has it been possible? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's always opportunities, you know, uh, whether there's a pandemic on or not. That, that's what it's all about. That's what gets me up in the morning. How can we improve things? How can I make passenger journey better? How can I make the processes slicker? How can I ensure safety and security is always uh, enhanced? Yeah, I mean, you know, these, these challenges of, for example, temperature checks, stickers on the floors, social distancing and perspex and so on. Yeah, I'm sure... In the shops in Kent, you'll see good examples and bad examples of of uh, of how people have implemented uh, the necessary measures to try and reduce the spread of the coronavirus as well as protect passengers, customers, should I say. So I think that's really, really important to always look for opportunities to improve your processes. Operational excellence can mean a lot to lots of people, you know. I, I, I follow a, a process of, or it, it's almost like a Six Sigma, the, the MAIX, so define, measure, analyze, implement, and control. So define what I want to do in terms of putting a, make sure a passenger travels through the airport safely, securely, with a good experience. You know, measure it, analyze the data, implement uh, improvements or changes, and control, and recycle, go back to the same again. So they're always like the plan, do, check, review type thing. But within a Six Sigma um, 5S type of model, it's a defined measure, analyze, implement and control. And that's why I think that that's how we can always improve because it's never perfect. No such thing as a perfect airport or a perfect experience. You will get 
they will always have opportunities for improvement. And if we keep focusing on enhancing the safety, the welfare, the guest experience at the airports through analysing data, measuring our performance, getting feedback, there will be always opportunities to improve in Excel and ensuring the passenger receives the service level, the service level they expect. I think it's fair to say that it hasn't really been the happiest time for aviation. But are you optimistic for 2021? What is your business outlook? Um, well, there's two questions there, isn't it? Am I optimistic and what's the business outlook? Uh, I'm always optimistic, you know. Um, I think that it's very easy and it's perfectly understandable for people to be all doom and gloom. And it has been devastating to the industry. And I've had so many friends and colleagues who have lost their jobs or, you know, who have, you know, their careers have been put on hold, for example, etc. Businesses are going out of business. Airlines have gone bust. It, 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 is, it is terrible. There is, uh, as you say, it's, it's the worst ever, you know. And I've, I've managed no closures at Gatwick and volcanic ash in the European airspace closing and monsoons closing the airports in Mumbai. And, but this is something pretty, pretty spectacular in terms of the impact and the length of the impact in terms of how we recover and when we recover. But I think we've got to remain optimistic. I think that um, if, we, if we continue to talk, if we continue to share best practice, if we continue to work together, uh, I think that ACI, IATA and ICAO are working closely, probably closer now than ever before, whether the COVID passport or whatever, you know, has been trialled under, I think there's about a dozen airlines under IATA working now together on and at least testing and trialling and put forward some uh, fairly robust and secure proposals to the authorities. I think that's a positive. The vaccination rollout, whilst it's slow in certain parts of Europe and slow in certain parts of the world, I think it can only be seen as a positive if you look at the data coming out of the United Kingdom in terms of the number of hospitalisations being reduced through the implementation of the uh, vaccination. I think that's a positive. And I think human beings and people in general. You know, before we started this video call, you and I had a general chat, we just want to get on with our lives again. You know, we want to travel, we want to see friends and loved ones, we want to do business and we want to, you know, there's a place for virtual conferencing, but you can't be sitting down with somebody face-to-face, having a good business conversation, and you can't be going on holiday, you know. Going away with your family, going away with your friends, going to visit loved ones, like I say, our sector is a sector that brings people together from a, from a business perspective, from a pleasure perspective, from a leisure, for an excitement. We're going to bounce back. There's no doubt about it. And I think once the governments can get their act together, dare I say it, in terms of working together, because there's so many different countries doing so many different things, I think it's really, really important that there's a, a, almost like a standardisation of saying, right, let's, let's make a decision. You know, if you've had your COVID-19 vaccination, you don't need to isolate anywhere. Do a PCR test before you leave your origin. Do a PCR test on arrival. Carry on. Do your business meeting. Have your holiday. Relax. Enjoy yourself. So, yes, I am optimistic. From a business outlook, again, we had three or four different scenarios that we ran. Business coming back in quarter one, quarter two, quarter three. Everything staying the same up till the end of the year. So we just have to take each month as it comes, you know. Uh, we're sitting here now today as we're doing this uh, this call. I think that the, the business outlook is, is fairly difficult still at the moment. You know, we're, we're into the second quarter of the year now. We're not seeing any significant increases in passenger numbers. We don't anticipate that to possibly Q3. And maybe by Q4, we'll start to see a, a, a slightly bigger increase, assuming that 
vaccination rollout increases and uh, yeah, we, we, we move forward like that. Nobody has a crystal ball, Holly, so we just have to be pragmatic, be optimistic, be upbeat, do everything we possibly can to stimulate a little bit of confidence. And if something goes wrong, take stock, pause, put a new plan together, move forwards. Yeah, I think you, you touched on the collaboration that you've seen, um, certainly between airports and airlines and the associations as well. Um, it's a shame that governments have not yet you know, chosen to, to collaborate in such a way, but um, hopefully moving forward, we will definitely see that. I read that over the next 20 years, passenger traffic growth in the Middle East is projected to increase by an average of 4.3% per year. And this is above the global average of 4% growth per year. Are the airports that you manage, um, are they prepared to accommodate this increase in passenger numbers over the next 20 years, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the government of Oman invested a huge sum of money in ensuring the airports were of a, a very high standard and had the capacity and the infrastructure to accommodate that growth. Uh, Muscat International Airport can handle up to 25 million passengers per annum. <clears throat> Before the pandemic, we were handling 18 million passengers. Uh, so there's plenty of capacity there, uh, and even then, the 25 million was not was not a figure that I thought was realistic. I think we could put 30, 35 million passengers through that airport with uh, implementation of new technologies and biometric, for example, uh, self-service kiosk, self-service bag drop. We've got plenty of capacity. We've got an enormous airfield with mm-hmm. huge amount of capacity for for uh, for air traffic movements. And if we work, you know, hard and with the right stakeholders, we could get 30, 35 million passengers through there, no problem at all. And the Middle East is going to be the centralised hub for the world, really, let's be honest, you know. Whether you're going west to east, east to west, you're going to go through Dubai, uh, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, or through one of our airports. And you've worked in a few different airports. I think it's fair to say you've been around the block a few times, David. Um, you've been in the industry for 28 years. You've worked as um, head of airside ops for London Gatwick, as well as chief operating officer for Edinburgh and Mumbai Airport. But in your experience, would you say that there is one challenge that all airports face, no matter their size or their location? I think that's a really, really good question. And, you know, I think I said something earlier, it's a little bit of a flippant comment in mind, but once you've seen one airport, you've seen one airport because demographic of passenger, size of operation, location, you know, when the airport was built, I mean, Edinburgh was built in 1977, it's had extension after extension, it's just so bitty, it's unbelievable, you know. It's not a pleasant experience. It wasn't a pleasant experience. I think the, the current owners have done a good job of making the best of a very awkward uh, designed building of in the late 1970s. I think, you know, and then if you look at Mumbai, Mumbai Terminal 2 is probably, for me, one of the most beautiful airports and simplest airports to travel through in terms of Terminal 2. Again, a fantastic facility. I think the challenges are always going to be balancing up your growth strategy with the customer expectation. All airports are commercial businesses. We want to grow. We want to increase our, our market share in terms of passenger numbers, air traffic movements, etc. Do you have the right infrastructure? Do you have the right processes um, to meet that demand and to meet that expectation? So I can't give you one particular challenge that's the same across all the airports because we are so different. It is all about people, bags and planes, but the people are different, the bags are different and the planes are different, whether you're in Edinburgh, Mumbai 
for Oman, you know. So uh, sorry, I can't give you a more defined answer to that, but I think it's mainly about your 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 strategic vision in terms of what you want to be and what your business looks like in the longer term, versus what your infrastructure and your capability is, both in terms of your people capability and your capability to deliver the level of service required to meet that strategic growth plan that you have. I think it's fair to say as well that um, you know you've you've got plenty of extra capacity for these rising passenger numbers in the future. So I think you're going to be pretty sorted for, for the next couple of decades. And I've also been on a on a virtual walk around Muscat Airport um, via the website. And I have to say, it looks incredibly beautifully designed and everything. So hopefully I'll get to visit one day. Yes, one day, one day. I mean, I have to say it's not the largest airport in the Gulf or uh, in, the, in, the, in the broader region, but by a country mile. It is the most beautiful and efficient airport. It's just it's just beautiful. The design is, is lovely. There's lots of brightness, high ceilings, there's palm trees in the check-in area. It's a wonderful experience. It really is a wonderful experience. And and the staff are, you know, you would expect me to say that the staff and the people are just fantastic. You know, whether it's arriving as an international arrival with the Royal Man police. Uh, you know, they, they have a very important job to do in terms of the security of the country. But the Royal Man Police, uh, the men and women of, of that organisation, are always there to greet you with a smile. You know, and the Omani hospitality is is unique, in, in my experience, uh, in the region. Uh, and it's, I think, it really helps support one another. Beautiful infrastructure and very friendly, welcoming people. So come to Oman. I will do. <laughs> um, I guess a bit of a one of the last questions, you know, a bit of a forward-looking one. What does the future of terminal management and airside operations look like to you? How do you think that your role will change? I think in the 28 years, my role's changed massively, you know, for the different airports, as you mentioned, that I've worked at or even in different roles. I think that's all part of the fun of aviation. It never sits still. You know, uh, airport operations are always changing. We've already touched on biometric technology. I think that's the future of terminal operations, no doubt about it. But we also have to bring on this uh, new challenge of ensuring everything's absolutely immaculate, spotless, not just clean, but sanitised as well. Because sometimes things look clean, but aren't, you know, sanitised. So that's that's a, a big challenge that's going to be here to stay for the foreseeable future, uh, and rightly so. Uh, from an airside operations perspective, I think the majority of the operations have remained fairly the same. Uh, we will be working a uh, later part of this year on the implementation of ACDM, Airport Collaborative Decision Making. That was another project that was kicked off in 2019, but had to be postponed because of the pandemic in 2020. So efficiencies within airfield operations, Enhance safety on the on the on the ramp, increasing capacity on the runway, whilst at the same time bringing in new technologies such as AI for turnarounds, for example. You know, just so we're learning and ensuring the highest standard of safety and efficiency on the ramp. And, and from a baggage perspective, in terms of delivery, there's there's always lots of opportunities there. We're using RFID tagging now for certain bags. BRS is fully up and running as well. IATA 753 is uh, is implemented in Muscat. There will always be things changing, you know, and I think that's why I said I said that's what's the exciting thing about working in an airport environment. It never sits still. There's always there's always one of our competitor airports, whether in the region or globally, always pushing the envelope 
to try and be bigger, better, faster, more efficient, slicker. You know, so I think I think and rightly so. We will continue to evolve and change and uh, ensure that we've got everything in place that we need to have in place to stimulate that growth and that confidence in the travelling public. And then when things start to hopefully return to normal in a few years' time, normal being pre-COVID in terms of passenger numbers, air traffic movements, we'll continue to evolve. Things will change. We never sit still. Absolutely. That's something I'm uh, really excited about, particularly for someone who's just joined the industry in November last year. So, yeah, very excited to see the new changes and developments that will be happening. Just to finish off, I have a bit of a lighthearted question for you, um, and that is, barring any of your own airports, um, which airport in the world is your favourite and why? Oh, wow, that's a, that's unfair because I've got people, friends out that work all over the world in airports and will be saying, why did you not choose my airport, David? Um, well, not one of my current airports, but I think Terminal 2 in Mumbai is just spectacular. Uh, the previous owners and operators, GVK, under uh, the vice chair, the, the deputy chairman, Mr Sanjay Reddy, did a fantastic job there. The design is, is unbelievable. The, the the interior of the terminal building is just of the high standards with beautiful artwork and, you know, museum pieces everywhere so it's a fantastic place to go through and it's an experience there's water features there's trees and plants and everywhere you know it's, it's amazing but it's really really efficient as well uh, so Mumbai Terminal 2 is probably the favourite I've went through also you can't fail to mention Changi as well and even Incheon I've travelled through both those airports in the past the Incheon airport is in Seoul is is so efficient. It's incredible, you know. Uh, and Changi is obviously fantastic. Uh, again, efficient, good service. I've not had the pleasure of going through the duel yet, but uh, hopefully one day in the next few months or even next year, I'll get a chance. But my own personal experience of Mumbai, although I worked there for just over a year, uh, is probably the, the best because it's got everything. I think. And India's got that excitement about it, you know. India's just India. India's just a. India is incredible India, that's how it's marketed as a tourist destination. And India is an incredible country with incredible people, a, a, a country of amazing contrast. And as soon as you land there, you know you're in India and you, you, it's exciting. You know, there's a, from, a, from a foreigner's perspective, a landing in the Mumbai Terminal 2 for the first time, it's pretty impressive. Well, I guess uh, um, another bonus question then, when will, where will be the first place that you travel to on holiday when you can? Where will be the first place I travel to on holiday? Ah. Well, I'm one of these people that never likes to go to the same place twice. Uh, believe it or not, I'd like to go somewhere I can go skiing. I don't know, maybe Vancouver, uh, something like that. You know, go go skiing in Whistler. There's not much, not much chance of uh, skiing in the Middle East, obviously, unless you go to the Mall of the Emirates. Well, sand dunes, you can snowboard on those. Can't you? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Well, David, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Um, thank you so much for your time. Stay safe, and I hope that we can meet face-to-face very soon. Okay. Thanks, Holly. It was really great to hear David's philosophy on airport operational efficiency, as well as his predictions on the future of travel and how the touchless element and seamless travel will become even more important in the coming years. And I noted how he said that passenger expectations have changed and that as an airport, you have to make that decision on whether to spend a few million dollars investing in biometric and touchless processes, as all stakeholders and passengers will eventually have to take on some of this cost. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, then make sure you subscribe to the magazine and follow us on our social media channels. And we hope to see you again on the next podcast.